After five straight hits, Harold Prince has finally struck out. Tenderloin is duller than dishwater and trivial. Walter Kerr says the show is the most serious comedy I ever saw, featuring a crusading minister who wants to eliminate the production numbers. Bach and Harnick's Tenderloin is up next on Flop of the Heap. Flop of the Heap's mission is not to bash, rip, pan, grill, or flambe the Broadway productions we explore. Nor are we here to put performers and other artists down. More importantly, we also recognize that part of the creative process is failure, and believe facing those failures with a critical but genial attitude should be the norm. There can be no success without failure. After all, you can't spell hopeful without flop. Uh, you, you made just some, a beer, you just made, a generic beer from the beer store. Fa- it's from the beer brewery. Where's it? <laughs> it's a founders it's from, again. It's the same thing I had last okay. week. I, it's a nice uh, IPA. Um, I had too much beer this weekend, so I decided to cool it down and just have some coffee. Oh, okay. With bourbon and cognac and triple sec. Oh, that sounds kind of tasty. I would drink that. Yeah. Is it uh, wo- is it over ice or is it warm? It is warm. It is warm. I like a hot toddy, so I feel like I would like that. Do you remember... Oh, I don't remember where it was. I want to say it was Knoxville or something. We went to this um, bar that had a bunch of hot toddy options, and one of them, multiple of them, included an extra of adding some emergency into the hot toddy. Sure, yeah, I guess that, that scans. Well, that's kind of like that. That's like the old wives' tale of drinking the hot toddy in the first place. It knocks it right out of you. But the, I mean, there's nothing scientific about it. I mean, I remember in college <laughs> there was a big. Um, there's always this big weekend long party at the end of the year, you know, for the whole town, not just the college. And I was sick, and I was like, "Oh no, I can't miss this. I got to drink. This is like this once a year. It's a big deal." So, what do you drink when you're feeling sick? Screwdrivers. Orange juice is good for you when you're sick. A little vitamin C. And the vodka will knock it right out of you. How do you deal with a hangover, like a bad hangover? Do you drink coffee or you drink like uh, a, a, a cocktail, like a Bloody Mary? No. Um, coffee and... In a cardboard cup? In a cardboard cup and some kind of sandwich or something. <laughs> meaty, meaty, bready, little fatty. I remember... Uh, what is your What is your favorite... Hair of the dog, sandwich, sandwich, <laughs> sandwich. I a good, a nice sandwich. thick sandwich on rye <laughs> makes me feel better. Yes, I'd like to try the tenderloin sandwich. Oh no, no, you don't want that. No, no, nobody likes it. Get the Reuben or the Kreplock or the tongue or something. Oh no, I, I don't do tongue, too tonguey. You know what? Just. Give me the tenderloin. Oh, no, seriously, pal. You won't like it. Come on, I'm sure it's not that bad. Nah, people always ask for their money back. Is it fresh? Fresh as a pretzel in Midtown. So not very? No. Is it exciting? Mm, Not unless you think an hour and a half in the bathroom is exciting. Does it come with a pickle? Does tax revenue from Hamilton single-handedly keep the lights on over at the Empire State Building? I don't know... Of course it comes with a f***ing pickle. What kind of New York diner do you think this is? Tenderloin and fries, please. All right. Order up. We're taking you back to 1960 with this episode and the musical Tenderloin. This is a... um, Not a Kander and Hebb, but a Bach and Harnick flopperoonie. Mm-hmm. You now you you picked this one because you had read the book or you were interested in it. Why? I think I went for it because it's Bach and Harnick and we haven't touched them yet. Yeah, we haven't done a Bach. Uh, yes, we we correct. We have not done a Bach and Harnick flop. Bach and Harnick flop. Bach and Harnick flop. Oh god, this shit again. Help. You like it? Do I? You're jealous. Okay. Because I'm good at it and you're you're a flop at it. I wouldn't even call that one a tongue twister. I think that was pretty weak. Okay, yeah, you d- do it. Bach and Harnick flop. Bach and Harnick flop. Bach and Harnick flop. Bach and Harnick flop. Good, good job. You're a professional. Thank you. I'm a trained actor. You pass your test. Thanks. Now go out into the world and wait for auditions. 
This show, folks, Tenderloin, was misguided. It it was misguided from the very start, perhaps. The source material is a book called Tenderloin, which I actually talked to my friend Stephen Zumbron, a musical director friend of mine, who has read the book and was able to tell me some differences between the musical and the source material, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, source material is pretty dark, and I think they kind of lightened up on it for the musical. Yeah, and I, I was reading, we'll get to it later, but I was reading some things about their original drafts, and they were a lot closer to the book than the book in the beginning, and they probably should have stuck with that. All right. Now, what is what is the tenderloin? What does it mean? The tenderloin is basically the what was the red light district in New York in the late 1800s. Um, it was between 24th Street and 42nd, between 5th and 7th Avenues. Uh, Roughly. Do you know where the term comes from? Uh, yes, there was a, a some corrupt cop who was assigned to the Tenderloin, and he said, oh, I've been eating Chuck steak me whole life, and now <laughs> I'm going to have a little Tenderloin. Yeah. Um, uh, given that the cops got paid more in the Tenderloin because everyone was bribing everyone else. You know what the funny thing is, is he was working Wall Street. And then got moved to the Tenderloin and was like, ah, now I'm going to be part of the corruption. That's, that's where the real money is. <laughs> Should have played the long game well, and stayed in Wall Street. New York, New York City in uh, for t- 250 some odd years and today is uh, broken up into different categories. Manufacturing we don't have anymore, but entertainment, tourism, debauchery, and um, sex. You go to you go to the tenderloin if you want to do a little gambling, uh, 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 have a little sex, uh, perhaps drink a little drink, mm-hmm. maybe maybe uh, commit some crimes. Yeah. So so a uh, b- big background before we get into it. Uh, Bach and Harnick, um, of course. Bach and are we Harnick. gonna Google all night, or are we just gonna keep? Well, I, we're just sort of talking. I thought it was nice, but okay, you know we can stop. No, 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 I like no, 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 no. I don't want to upset you because you'll come back later and you'll be like, "This is my thing," and you're gonna interrupt me. Just keep going. <laughs> what was the opening date, Mark? <laughs> Wait, I gotta Google all night. I gotta Google all night. All right, fantastic. Um, <laughs> wow, I really like different. I like that arrangement. I gotta Google all night. I gotta Google all night. It sounds like something you'd find in uh, a Dance a Little Closer. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, Tenderloin opened. Opening date, October 17th, 1960. And closed? April 23rd, 1961. Okay, so had a, a decent few months run. Yeah. not Two, not 200 something performances. 216. 216. Uh, closed at a substantial loss, I imagine. Could not find the exact numbers. I, re- I read that it closed assume. at a substantial loss. However, I, I was watching an, an interview with Shel- uh, Sheldon Harnick, and he said mm-hmm. that because the show ran almost six months, it he, quote, it almost paid the investors back entirely, but that might be wishful memory. Mm, yeah. I, 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 you know, given their future successes, I don't think they looked back on this one fondly. I wouldn't think so. It sounds not pleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what th- what theater? Uh, so it was at the 46th Street Theater, which today is the Richard Rogers mm-hmm. Theater. Home of Hamilton. Which is current and forever home of Hamilton. <laughs> now and forever, Hamilton. <laughs> uh, the, you know, there's... Um, Richard Rogers is one of five theaters in New York right now, or now in quotes, whose mm-hmm. current production is their longest-running production. Okay, let me think here. Phantom. Yeah, Phantom. Duh. Hamilton. Chicago. Chicago, yep. Wicked now at this point. Wicked and Lion King? Um, No, uh, Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. okay. Interesting. Because okay. Lion King moved, so I guess that wouldn't... It's 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 run long... Lo- Chicago moved too, didn't it? Uh... Yeah, Chicago moved. Chicago, you... oh, Chicago started... At the Richard Rogers Theater, both the original production and this revival that's been well, going on there must forever. be something that played at the Lion King Theater that ran longer than Lion King. Then, I guess, unless I missed that one. Uh, can I say this about that revival of Chicago that's been going on forever? Oh, what? 
Let it die. Oh, but it's such a it's it's a guaranteed cash cow if you're the producer. Yeah, Chicago's up because there. They... Like when you come to New York, it's you you see Phantom, you see you know the the leggy girls in the Fosse dancing Chicago. You see something New mm-hmm. York, and that's it. It always sells. Um, also at the Richard Rogers Theater, the original uh, production and the 1995 revival of How to Succeed in Business. Mm. Um, also the original Susicle and the original 1776. Mm. Good history. Good job, Richard, Richard Rogers. Rogers Theater. Do you know what is special about the way that that theater was built? It's the first theater to use the democratic seating plan, meaning it used to be if you had the cheap seats, you entered through a different door than the rich orchestra people so they didn't have to mingle with you. The Richard Rogers was the first theater to do away with Have that. everyone so come in through the enter. same lobby. <laughs> yeah. With the riffraff yeah. upstairs. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. You wouldn't even have to see the poor people above you. <laughs> I mean, it's like the Titanic, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> except they were below you on the ship. Yeah. Um, that year uh, of Tenderloin was the same year as Bye Bye Birdie, Camelot, Do Re Mi, Irma, which was another musical about sex workers. Irma so. La Douce, yeah. Yeah, Irma La Douce. Um, do you know what was playing across the street from the Richard Rogers at the Lundfontaine? During Tenderloin's run? Unsinkable? No. I don't know. Bigger. Sound of Music. Oh, 19... Okay, Sound of Music opened, what, 58 or 9? 59. 59 and just kept running and running. It was 1,400 performances or or something like that. Wow. Anyway. So, music, Jerry Bach, lyrics, Sheldon Harnick. We know them for, of course, Fiddler on the Roof and others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uh, She Loves Me. Yes. Uh, And before this, the only thing they were really successful with was and endlessly successful with was Fiorello and won the Pulitzer Prize and all the Tonys in the world and every Tony yes um now the same exact team did Tenderloin because George Abbott did the book for uh Fiorello right it is absolutely ridiculous how how many people they brought back I actually wrote it all down so for Fiorello and Tenderloin you had the same uh, composer and lyricist. Right. You had the same book writer, the same director. George Abbott. Yep. This, we'll get to him. Uh, the same music director, the same producers. Uh, Harold Harold Prince, right? Harold Prince and... Um, Robert E. Griffith. Yes. Um, you had the same, same dance arranger, same general manager, same stage manager, and same hair designer. So what could go wrong? Definitely going to win another Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Nope. Not quite. No. Not quite. See what happens when you try to outdo your Pulitzer Prize winning piece <laughs> that cannot be outdone. You always flop. And also, let's throw this out there now. The subject matter of the two shows is honestly not that different. Yes, because so Fiorello is 1930s, right? 30s, yeah. 30s, and Fiorello is Fiorello LaGuardia, the famous mayor of New York that came in and cleaned up the city. This takes place, what, 40 years earlier? Yep. And is about a reverend who comes in to clean up the tenderloin. Yeah. And it's both about New York City corruption and Tammany Hall. Yeah, it's Tammany Hall, Big Machine. They just did another one. Yeah. Who played Fiorello in 1959. Uh, Tom Bosley. None other than our our friend Tom Bosley, who was you know, is extremely affable and lovable as a main character. Fiorello is legendarily loved as a mayor of New Mm -hmm. York. Tenderloin, on the other hand, the main character is a religious man, a a holy Christian, I want to say evangelist, but it's more about, like, moralist. Yeah, and actually cares about politics and corruption yes a, a good a good man wants to clean up corruption and help people escape poverty and sickness and uh destitution and all that so did you know that that reverend was based on a real person yes um oh pankhurst uh parkhurst parkhurst yeah was a famous um moral crusader religious man who lived during the 
early or before the turn of the century and worked in the Tenderloin District to fight corruption. Now, it, it, yeah. it wasn't only at this time period that, you know, there was obviously prostitution, gambling, and, and laws were being broken constantly, but mm-hmm. in order for these businesses to operate smoothly, they literally had a organized system of paying off law enforcement to pay off politicians, to pay off the mayor to keep these businesses running. Dr. Parkhurst, the guy who the reverend is based on, yes, died at the age of 91 after sleepwalking off his porch roof in his home in New Jersey. What? That's a If you asked me how did a 91-year-old die, it's not on my list. That no, a 90-year-old a 91-year-old dies asleep in his bed. At 91 walking shouldn't be a thing. <laughs> sleepwalking definitely shouldn't be a thing. Jeez. Let's go back to George Abbott. So George Abbott George Abbott was the director of the show. Or four of the shows he worked on won Tony Awards, uh, Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, Fiorello, and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. 80-year career, and in that time, directed over 40 Broadway shows. Do you know he lived to be 107? Wow. What year was did he die then? I think he died. What year was that Damn Yankees revival? 96? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, maybe. Um at the age of 106, he walked down the aisle for opening night of that revival. And at 107, he appeared on stage with Gwen Verdon for that year's Tony's opening number. Wow. I, I, he, I'll say this. He didn't look good. Uh, well, who looks great at 107? Yeah. Susan Lucci, I would imagine, will. <laughs> yeah. And Dolly Parton, for sure. Now he did wait. Did you have a book? So he did the book as well. Yes, him and Jerome Weidman. Yeah, uh, who also did Fiorello and also did I Can Get It for You Wholesale, which anyone who's interested in Broadway history is what got Barbara Streisand her start mm-hmm. at the age of nineteen. Yes, John. How old are you now? <laughs> you. <laughs> I'll be 40, and no, I have yet to play my bit part in a Broadway flop that 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 catapults me to celebrity. <laughs> Cast notables. Now, the uh, Reverend Brock, the lead character, was played by Morris Evans, and his name mm-hmm. is spelled Maurice, but everyone pronounces but his says, name, and he says Morris. So yes. we will we will pronounce his name correctly and say Morris Evans, not Maurice mm-hmm. Evans. Uh, Eileen Rogers, who we've talked about before. And Ron Husman, who was in uh, Fiorello, right? Was he? Yes, he was in Fiorello. I think in a small part or in an ensemble, and he was he was like catapulted to stardom as as he played. So the other major character is this reporter who is sort mm-hmm. of a what's the word a tattler, sort of undercover reporter looking to get like a dirty scoop, like a yellow journalism kind of a thing. And yeah. in the story of Tenderloin, he is sort of trying to infiltrate Reverend Brock's congregation to try to dig up some dirt on him. Morris Evans was mainly a, a serious actor, like a straight actor, lots of a Shakespearean, tons actor. of Shakespearean experience, a British um, Shakespearean experience, Shakespearean experience. Oh, oh I'm I'm turning off the podcast. Hey, now. but that, well, I when when we discover them, we can't just ignore them. Okay. Somebody's writing somebody's writing them all down for a book. Uh he was uh Morris Evans was a British actor. In America he was mostly known for his Broadway appearances in in Shakespeare roles. He did Hamlet like 3 times over the years, Macbeth, Falstaff, you name it, you know, he did it. And uh TV and film, he was uh Dr. Zaius in um the original Planet of the Apes movie. <laughs> yes, Dr. Um, Zaius, Dr. Zaius, Dr. Zaius. Oh, Dr. Zaius. <laughs> uh and in uh Bewitched, he played a reoccurring role as uh Samantha's father. Yes, he did. That's where I know him from. I found a quote from him. I don't know if this is funny or not, maybe it is. He said, quote, actually, musicals in Shakespeare aren't different. You look up and see 50 chorus girls in one or 50 soldiers in the other. I mean, he's not wrong. No. But there is a major difference between seeing those two things. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time, the soldiers are not going to dance, except in the producers. 
Did you know that Morris Evans was also supposed to be rumored to be the first choice for Henry Higgins before Rex Harrison? That would make sense. Yeah, I mean, he was so respected for his experience with Bernard Shaw that they mm-hmm. definitely had him in mind first. I wonder if it was uh, some contractual thing or he wasn't interested or I can't imagine mm-hmm. him not being interested. But I, I Did you read this article from the New York Times by Maurice Zolotow about uh, Maurice Evans and this show? No, I don't remember that, no. Do you know what a McReady pause is? A McReady pause? I don't know what that is. So, William McReady was this famous 19th century English actor who was often criticized for his long, dramatic <laughs> pauses. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, there's this quote from Morris Evans, uh, quote, If I forget a line of Shaw, well, I can take a long pause, what we call a McReady pause. And... I'm racking my brains to remember the line, but the audience thinks it's a lovely piece of acting. But Mm. if I forget a line of song, I can't stop. The baton is moving and the music goes on with me or without me. That that is how that works. (laughs) Apparently the conductor, the conductor Hal Hastings was just like ready at any moment to retard the band so that Morris Evans could remember what the hell he was supposed to sing. In fact... Uh. In that article, it says that he actually wrote the lyric. The song Dr. Brock in the show was added last minute. Um, He actually wrote the lyrics to the song on his cuffs to his shirt. Damn. In case he forgot them. I I did hear a couple uh, reports that Morris Evans did have trouble memorizing lines and lyrics. And when you're you're putting a show up out of town, there's... Chances are there's going to be a lot of changes. Yeah, and... uh, Maurice Zolotow, he wrote in that article, quote, It was enough to unhinge anybody, especially an actor accustomed to playing scripts that had been frozen since 1800. Which is a good point. I mean, you know, he, Morris Evans, didn't really originate stuff. No. He played the, the you know, the pinnacle roles for serious actors. Right. I, g- given his experience, I mean, I, no one's going to take his acting skills away from him, but it's a different animal putting a musical together from scratch. It's a totally different process. So you watched this community theater thing. Yeah, I found I did find um, a full-length production that some people had did. It was like uh, Quarry Town Theater or something, and they, they it seemed as though the theater was going to close, and then they put up Tenderloin, and people came to see it, and they were really proud of it. So I was I was more than happy to sit through their production. It, uh, but that means that you understand the plot. The plot, yes. Because I read the plot. You know, reading the original synopsis, I was like, this seems like a pretty simple musical. Sure. And then reading the detailed plot, I was like, there's so many characters, there's so many side plots, I uh, there's double crossing, there's double agents. Yeah. Like I, I so do you want to do it in long form? Do you have like a somewhat concise version? What's your what's your aim? Um yeah, let, let's sort of talk through the plot. So yeah, yeah. in the opening we meet the reporter character is based on Horatio Alger. Oh, I didn't. Uh, who didn't read is that. another real life character? And when mm-hmm. he, when the actor enters, he introduces himself as Horatio Alger, and then sa- But then for the rest of the play, goes by the name Tommy Howitt, which is the name of the reporter Tommy. Mm-hmm. In the opening, we also meet the Reverend Brock, who wants to shut down the Tenderloin, and he, you know, is reading Bible verses and talking about sin and corruption. La la la. We've mm-hmm. all seen Guys and Dolls. We know what that looks like. Yeah. We also meet the corrupt police lieutenant. Uh, we meet a girl named Lara, who is going to be the love interest of Tommy the reporter. But I, I wasn't sure who she was at first. It seems as though she's a member of the congregation. I believe her uncle. Oh God, I want to say her uncle is the choir master. He's like the deacon or something. He's definitely yeah. like high up in whatever hierarchy that this particular church has and they mm-hmm. keep describing it as the old stone church with which i want to say is in chinatown but i'm it might be a church that no longer exists or maybe it's mm-hmm. imaginary i don't know laura is an interesting character because obviously you need a love story and she's going to come up later you mm-hmm. also meet a few of the prostitutes there's one named margie uh, se- john 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 sex workers uh you meet this you meet the whores 
Um, the, uh, Nelly is an important whore. Whore. Margie is an important strumpet. Uh, you'll see them all later. Uh, women of the night. How many euphemisms can we say? Oh, in the we're next in so much trouble. Thirty minutes. Okay, go. We support sex workers on this podcast. Oh yes, I, I, I support sex workers. I think they should pay their fair share of taxes, like the rest of us, <laughs> busting our humps in other ways. <laughs> now, Tommy it wants to infiltrate the church, as I said. So he tries joining mm-hmm. the choir as a ruse, but the choir mistress doesn't approve of him not being a church member. So he like that that plan sort of falls through. So once the reverend becomes part of the scene, he decides to just sing a song and prove to them what a good singer he is. And what song does he sing? Probably the only well-known song from the musical Tenderloin, Artificial Flowers. Were you aware that the Bobby Darren cover of it reached the uh, number 20 spot on the Billboard charts? I am not surprised. That song is so weird. And... It bops. It's good. It's a I mean, great I song, but why did they ever choose it? So Artificial Flowers is about a little workhouse girl that, like, dies in an artifact, in an artificial flower factory at the turn of the century. Freezes to Freezes death. Freezes to death. Working. Working. But I think the idea is she never complains and she does her work, and when she goes to heaven, she'll be rewarded with... Uh, real flowers and uh, that's what attracts the reverend brock besides tommy's singing voice to tommy yes it's it's not only is he an excellent singer he also weaves this story of everything that the reverend is fighting against you know and and we've often talked about this subject is the subject in a lot of musicals the labor force movement you know this horrible time when the industrial revolution was just eating people up like commodities. You know, people weren't mm-hmm. protected at their workplaces. People had to work insane hours. Children had to work. We all know the story nowadays. But uh, th- this is the, this is the story of what this is a romantic tale of what could go wrong in this land of vice and mm-hmm. sin. There's a certain half of our political system that would love to get eight year olds back, back those, to work. Back back to work and back and. Sh- Getting their tiny little hands. You're not going to mooch off the system with your free preschool anymore. (laughs) What profit can be made out of that? (laughs) So he sings Artificial Flowers. It's like the third song in the show. Uh, And we need to obviously play a little of the up-tempo Bobby Darin. Give her the real Mm -hmm. thing. (laughs) She made artificial flowers. Artificial flowers. Flowers for ladies of fashion to wear She made artificial flowers You know those artificial flowers Fashion from Annie's despair Um, so right after the song, Reverend Brock, of course, is like, Sister Martin, I think this man would make a fine addition to the choir. <laughs> Although, it does seem like Reverend Brock kind of knows that Tommy has something up his sleeve. Yes. Tommy and Brock then sing What's In It For You, which kind of gives us the idea that they're... Nemesis-ies. They're Not whether they're on to one another, they're wary of one another, but they're really... I mean, the Reverend gives him all the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. in joining his parish and being part of... Pretending to be part of what they are and what they stand for. A lot of random stuff happens. We can kind of... Yeah, Maybe we can cut we don't need too much of the the side character. Well, plot. we are intru- we're introduced to Tommy uh, meeting Laura. Uh, she sings a song called Tommy Tommy, which is really pretty. Um, mm-hmm. Tommy sings a song at the bar. We learn that oh, he sings at the bar as a side job, and that's why he's such a good singer. He sings the picture. That's a great the picture of happiness. Song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but it's repeat it again. The picture of we... happiness is the song that he sings at the bar. Yeah, my uh. Coach wanted me to sing that. I don't know if that song is me too appropriate, so it's on the back burner. It's a fun song. It's it's a really bop song, and it's got um. <laughs> is that our? It really bops. It really it's a, bops. It's a, it's a bop. It's a headbanger. It's a total bop. It's a it's a classic Bach and Harnick headbanger. Bach and Harnick headbanger. Bach and Harnick headbanger. Bach and Harnick headbanger. I like Bach bop. <laughs> Bach bop. <laughs> Bach bop. Bach bop. Bok 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 bok. Oh God! Okay, go. Um, <laughs> things 
it's it's pretty cut and dry. You've got this whole colorful cast of tenderloin characters, you know, these 1890 sort of saloon-looking prostitutes and, like, gambling men and all the dregs of society are mm-hmm. hooting and hollering and singing up a storm. Every other scene is the congregation, and it's all of Brock's followers and the deacon and his daughter and all of uh, nuns and all of these pious, kind people. So it constantly goes back and forth between, like, you know, rowdy bar and choir loft. It's a lot like Handmaid's Tale. Okay. (laughs) It's not really like Handmaid's Tale. But here's the thing. The book was. The book really describes the grit, the dirt, the syphilis, the death of this time period. The musical does not. Everything's hinted at and everything is romanticized because it's a musical. So no one, Mm -hmm. like it's not, you're not seeing... 1960, they couldn't do any of the stuff in the book. They, they, they didn't. They couldn't mention any of the stuff that hadn't been mentioned before. Even the original production of Cabaret, which would come a few years later, isn't the raunchy production we know of from Studio 54. It took. Yeah. It definitely crossed lines and was of its time, but it mm-hmm. wasn't the nudity nonsense that we think of today. It's sa- a bit sanitized. Nobody in the original production pulled down their pants and showed us their ass tattooed with a huge swastika on it. No one did that in the original. No. That's why you have to get to the theater at half hour. You got to get into makeup. (laughs) Oh, you mean, wait, are you telling me that Alan Cumming didn't actually go get a giant swastika tattooed on his ass? I don't know that for sure. (laughs) I I don't assume Alan Cumming would have done that. (sighs) So there's... (laughs) Things take a turn when there's a beach scene. Oh, boy. The deacon wants to talk to Brock about the ongoing reforming of the Tenderloin, but Brock is in a beachy mood. <laughs> it's a day It's a day off. So he sings a song called Dear Friend, which is about enjoying the day and not worrying too much and comes out of left field so hard, the audience probably was flat, just... Mouths agape. Well, Morris Evans' contract demanded he be in a skimpy swimsuit at some point. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, (laughs) it turns out that this is one of the songs that was added out of town because the Reverend Brock's character and his side of the story was just so dour and Mm -hmm. uninteresting. They give him this random song at the beach that's like, tra-la, la plage, where, you know, we're we're dancing in our funny turn-of-the-century beachwear. It's weird. It's real weird. Somewhere during the whole beach sequence, there's Tommy, the reporter, is taking photographs. That's going to come back to be important later. Mm -hmm. Act one is about to end. Brock and Tommy have a little bit of a confrontation. Um, He learns that Tommy sings in in Clark's, this dive bark, and asks him uh, and his congregation to accompany him now that he knows that he's sort of of this world, he asks Mm. Tommy to help them do an undercover mission to infiltrate the the Tenderloin and Mm -hmm. disguise themselves as the dregs of society to to find out exactly what's going on. Which the real Dr. Parkhurst actually did. did. Yes, actually did this. Now, this is represented in a song called Army of the Just. The first act ends with a great song called How the Money Changes Hands, which is... Just as it sounds, the the lyrics go, the men pay the girls, and the girls pay Liz, and Liz pays the cops, and the cops pay Fry, and Fry pays Schmidt, and Schmidt pays the alderman, and the alderman pays the mayor. Everybody's happy, everybody's happy. that's the way she's there. Just as long as the money changes, so long come see you in church. And the whole song is just about what the Tammany Hall machine is. Mm-hmm. Now, during this number, of course, Brock is in disguise. Act one ends. Act two starts with good, clean fun, which is... Which you texted me and told me was your favorite number you've ever heard in a musical ever. No, I said it was possibly the weakest act two opener outside of Clambake. And it's... <sighs> 
worse than clam bake. It's a bunch... Clam bake is carousel for anyone who doesn't know. So the clunker song in Guys and Dolls is More I Cannot Wish You. Now, no one wants to hear Uncle Arvide Abernathy singing that song. (laughs) The whole purpose of those dumb ballads with the tertiary character is to change Changes Havana and move the wagons off like first song you cut guys and dolls is more I cannot wish you mm-hmm. in this show this song is as if Arvide Abernathy had a production number about <laughs> purity and the old days and the fun of weenie bakes and like you know <laughs> that old stick and hoop toy and all the favorites of Days gone by. Ah, the 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 nostalgic eighteen fifties. Like, wasn't my favorite. No, it's truly bad. All right, so continue on. So now there's a Brock and Schmidt have a big confrontation scene. Um, Schmidt is the uh, corrupt cop. Yep. Um, there's been a sort of a side story this whole time, by the way, about a nervous man from the congregation, a sort of a younger brother type, if you will, who fancies mm-hmm. Nita the prostitute. Did you know about any of this? Is that Joe? I think yeah, his name is Joe, and it's a very sweet sort of tertiary story. But it should also be mentioned he's doesn't he end up being a millionaire? That I missed. He is a farmer, and he discovers uh, coal on his land and becomes rich. At some point, he gives Nita like a giant diamond or something. Right? Okay, well that explains why she's able to escape the tenderloin. Yeah. See, I, this is a more interesting story. I want to see what Nita and Joe are up to. You know, like those two seemingly, assumingly get married at the end of the play, but we don't Mm -hmm. see it. And every musical has to end with a wedding, so we're unsatisfied when we go home. So, yes, we talked about Gentle Young Johnny. Um, Now, there's something about that picture capturing at the beach that um, Schmidt gets a hold of this picture, and then apparently it shows Brock in an unflattering light, and... Tommy has provided the picture through some... I mean, there's all this backstabbing and and um, sneaky meanderings happening around. So it doesn't really explain what the picture is of. So then there's a whole song about a trial where they kind of explain the scandal hitting the papers. And this is Cole House Demands. Then there's... <laughs> uh, so it's like, oh my God, my, my favorite um, bit of lyric here. Reverend Brock takes the stand, Reverend Brock... Spills the dirt, Reverend Brock testifies. <laughs> or a double boiler. Double boiler. And they all, so there's a whole scene that isn't really, it's like a fake um, trial. I don't know. Brock and Tommy have another confrontation. There's lots of book in the second act, lots of melodrama, raised voices, chairs toppled over. Um, There's a confrontation between Brock and his congregation. There's more yelling. It turns out Schmidt has doctored this photograph that Tommy gave him. So Tommy, Mm -hmm. who hasn't been the best guy, is sort of out. Used some of that 1890s Photoshop. Yes, (laughs) right. 1890s Photoshop was literally cutting with a pair of scissors two pictures, putting (laughs) them together, and then put and then printing it. Um, It turns out, uh, uh, so Tommy is outraged. And this is important for what we're supposed to take home as an audience in that Tommy has been kind of a not-so-great guy, and he's outraged by injustice. The, he mm-hmm. has learned that Brock is a good dude, and this, he doesn't deserve all this shit he's going through. Mm-hmm. So even though Tommy was the one who was paid to take a damning picture of him in the first place, he presents the negative, and that's how Brock sort of gets out of being, um, you know... Vilified. Yes, vilified forever. Unfortunately, it's too late. The deacon asks for Brock's resignation, mostly because so much scandal has been brought to the church. Mm-hmm. The church wa- just wants to get back to their Sunday organ concerts and their general... The church, the Christian church, is very well known that when there's scandal, they do away with the bad people immediately and clean house. They're very well known for <laughs> This that. is a well-known theme. Uh, yes, a church is simply sweep un- either under the rug or into the next church, and that's all they ever speak of it. Mm-hmm. No problems were ever actually solved, which is kind of the lesson of this whole musical. So, what, and then Brock, go- they all go off, right? And that <laughs> to their own. So then, yeah, the, I mean, the play kind of just wraps up. I mean, Nita comes in, she says some sappy words about how all her hopes and dreams of a better life are coming true. Mm-hmm. Um, the other sluts of New York. Uh, sing a reprise of Little Old New York, whore, 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 
repri- uh, it's a reprise that sort of turns into another song, Reform, which is about how they're complaining about, oh, Reform is this thing. Mm-hmm. We're all going to have to leave town. We're all going to have to go west and sell our wares there. Mm-hmm. So Tommy apparently gets a job in Denver and is headed west. So he, he has to say goodbye to, uh, what's her name? Laura. Yeah. And she sings the little pr- reprise of Tommy Tommy. Sh- and she can't sing the last note because she's too, like, verklempt. Mm-hmm. So now there's like a few minutes left to the play. What could possibly happen? I mean, I at this point, I'm not envisioning I'm ever going to get a kick line. <laughs> Tommy tells Brock that he's leaving for the clean, fresh air of Denver. Brock tells Tommy it looks like he's also heading out of town. And then there's a terrible joke where Brock is like, well, soon I'll be leaving as well. I hear the air in Detroit is also highly recommended. Which is... Ugh. What a bad joke that late in the show. There's no there's no Detroit pollution yet. <laughs> we learn in this scene that Tommy has learned he's kind of a good guy deep down after all, which is I I think the author's point. And mm-hmm. when it came to down to like choosing between what's right and what's wrong, he chose to do what's right and they end as friends even though they part. So and, basically And the, well, the so end... the very last thing that happens yeah. is so the tenderloin is shut down. All of the yep. um, all the fun and the all the, the fun is gone. And the, the kick the kick lines are gone. There's no the kick shows lines. are gone. The, the the dancing girls are gone. Everything's gone. Everyone's moved west. Uh, we to Tenth Avenue. We arrive in Detroit for the final minute of the show, and instead of Little Old New York, they're singing Little Old Detroit, and it's the it's like the whole thing starts over again, and the Reverend is preaching salvation there. Hades Town kind of does that. Yeah, but Hades Town does it well. <laughs> I mean, the, the the singing little old Detroit at the end is pretty funny because it's it's like the exact same scene as the opening. That's a good gimmick. Yeah. It's just all the stuff in the middle. <laughs> Everything we spent the last two hours and 29 minutes watching, got it. Yeah, bad. So what next? Uh, you, we can talk about the score? No, let's just go on a crit- I, I Honestly, lyric-wise, there wasn't... Did you have anything? I didn't find anything. No, I I think it's a good. I didn't find anything good. I do think it's a good score. I thought it was. I think the lyrics are clever. There was nothing that struck me as super trying too hard or simply bad lyrics. I thought it was Mm -hmm. a good score. I liked the songs generally. It it seems that the book is really the the clincher here. Reverend Brock takes the stand. Reverend Brock spills the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) It's time. Okay. For critical reception? For John's favorite segment of the show, Critical Reception! Hooray! Okay, okay. so uh, I would like to point out that most of the reviews were pans. Even the Christian Science Monitor didn't like it. And the, and the lead character is a Christian. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Uh, let me start here. Fort Lauderdale News. Quote, Saturday night supper parties are comfortable get-togethers for a winter's eve. For such a supper, pork tenderloin Diablo is a meaty dish with a man-pleasing flavor. The sauce is a tantalizing combination of tomatoes, onions, peppers, wait, wait, and herbs. Wait. Ma- <laughs> Mark, Mark, are, are you reading the menu from Delmonico's or something? What is this? I don't. I had such a hard time at the beginning. <laughs> Narrowing down the reviews. articles. <laughs> Finding reviews you found mostly recipes. You find mostly butcher advertisements <laughs> <laughs> or like um, key food circulars. Let me finish. It is a good idea to have the recipe handy for the women to copy down and take home. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, wow. let's actually do it. John Chapman, The Daily News, noted the weak book, but he otherwise loved it. So I will not be quoting him at all. Oh, <laughs> should should I quote him? Yeah, I mean. He really praised oh, the show. Oh, it was, it was so positive. I that, it was it was positive. positive. Yeah. Why don't you start with ch- some Chapman then? Okay, we're starting positive. Good for us. Yeah. It, it allows us to go as negative as we want. I like that freedom. Okay, John okay, Chapman. Cool. If I stopped to analyze the libretto of Tenderloin, I could find some flaws. But last evening, I didn't want to stop. I was having too good a time listening to the Bach Harnick songs, including many fetching choral numbers. It's a grand show, and I don't think my morals have been damaged much. Okay, boring. This is not what people come here to listen to. <laughs> Did you get Frank Aston? 
Frank Aston, Frank Aston. No. Frank Aston, World Telegram and Son. George Abbott has whomped another whopper of a musical. I was completely abbotized in song, dance, and merriment. Um, Walter Kerr, Harold Tribune. Walter Kerr. Morris Evans has an extremely unsympathetic part. He plays a crusading minister who wants to eliminate the production numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Get rid of that kick line. That kick line is unholy. That's so good. Walter Kerr goes on. In case you are wondering what an actor who has long and valiantly served the serious drama is doing in the unfamiliar world of musical comedy, don't give it a second thought. Mr. Evans is perfectly at home. Tenderloin is the most serious comedy I ever saw. It begins with a hymn in a Park Avenue church and thereafter gets soberer and soberer and soberer. Mastermind George Abbott has let someone talk him into applying his magic to an unaccountably dour documentary. Hurrah and everything for good, clean fun, but where is it? Oof. He's such a bitch. This man is a bitch. Name a theater after him. What Hades town there? (laughs) Who is the biggest Um, bitch in town? You are, Kerr. All right, who else? Um, what else? Howard Taubman. Howard Taubman. This, I think we're going to come up, it came up a lot, is that the idea is the show failed because it took the wrong side. No one wants to see the holier-than-thou preacher win. We want to root for the underdogs no. and the prostitutes and, and the fun-having people. Yes, and no matter what the time period is, with the 60s or beyond... If someone is simply preaching, um, I keep losing the word. What is the word? Morality. If someone is simply mm-hmm. preaching morality, but they're not taking into consideration any of the real life factors like poverty, poverty and addiction, alcoholism, yeah. like uh, sudden infant lack death of syndrome, to, they, they're yeah. not considering anything. They're just uh, they're just name calling, and nobody that you're not on anybody's side. Nobody likes that guy. So Howard Taubman says, the glaring weakness is in the point of view. The creators of Tenderloin are not quite sure whether they are jesting or in earnest. They end by trying to have it both ways. They are for good and evil, and that leaves the show sitting on the fence. They're right, because they did take shots at the religious people as well, which I guess you can, like, it's okay to, like, play both sides. I, I did, but... Yeah, I did think the script played both sides in, in explaining that, well, I, this is how the economy works in this part of the town. You can't just mm-hmm. eradicate it. And I understand the side of you know, the poor, unsuspecting people are contracting deadly diseases and, you know, children are becoming corrupt. Like, this is obviously bad. Uh Taubman continues, Virtue in the theater is a less useful solvent for sin than laughter. The moment the authors of Tenderloin committed themselves to a serious approach to Reverend Brock, they were lost as showmen, mm-hmm. even if they chose the side of rectitude. And, uh, you know, re- so Reverend Brock wasn't even, he wasn't the main character of the book. They decided to make him the main character of the book, mistakenly. When they started writing the show, he wasn't. It wasn't until they contracted Morris Evans that they decided oh, we have this big star, he now has to be the focus of the show instead of Tommy and Laura. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book, it, 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 Tommy has more of a, more of a hard decision to make because the, the thugs in the Tenderloin sort of threaten to expose info about Laura and Brock, and he sort of mm-hmm. has to decide between them, the woman he loves or his friend. So mm-hmm. it, 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 like, that's a layer that makes it more interesting for an audience, I would think. Yeah, agreed. Mm. Whitney Bolton, Morning Telegraph. When it concerns itself with dedicated happy baggages and trolls, Tenderloin is a walloping and vivid and excitingly funny show. But when it turns to admire the sleek impregnables of virtue, it is doler than dishwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah duller than dishwater duller than duller dishwater. than dishwater it really is uh, that opening of act two is it's so horrendous yeah john mclean journal american the trouble with the play is that it is very difficult to have so much fun with vice and corruption and debauchery and then make a monument of the guy who is going to break it all up in a world with so many major matters 
It seems trivial to hearken back to this dreary minister who put a few policemen and prostitutes out of business. (laughs) (laughs) Ed Wilson, Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Okay. Mr. Abbott must have known that for Tenderloin to reach a satisfactory conclusion, the problem of where our sympathy should lie would have to be solved. But rather than solving it, he ignores it, hoping... I suppose, that if he pays no attention to it, it will go away. Of course, it does not go away, and the audience is stuck with it for two and a half hours. And the rest of their evening. Yeah. I think that's all I got. Do you have any more? That's all I got. Okay, so... Why did the show fail, Mark? Why did it fail? Bad book. Yeah, bad book. Trying to outdo Um, your Pulitzer Prize winning can't be outdone show. Yep. Uh, Choosing the wrong side to win. Yes, the end. choosing the wrong character to be the main character. Tommy should have been yeah. the main character. I also, here's my issue. Yeah, they did take punches at both the religious people and the tenderloin workers. In fact, this uh, I, I did like this one lyric that was sung in Dr. Brock. Uh, it says, Dr. Brock, close your eyes. You should not be worldly wise. Speak to us of lofty things. 1 Corinthians, 2 Kings. Dr. Brock, do everything in your power to keep our church an ivory tower. Basically, the rest of his followers are like, could you not, like, talk about, like, you know, political stuff? And, you know, could you just, like, not pay attention to what's going on in the world? That's not what we came here for. I mean, yeah, even his parishioners aren't with him. Yeah. Like, they just want to hear the pretty organ music and be good people. They, they're not necessarily interested in f- saving the world. That doesn't yeah, want to be saved anyway. Which, for Sheldon Harnick, is a... That was a really good jab, but I would say that the issue with the show is when you have this kind of material, you need acerbic wit. I don't think, first of all, I don't think that's his strong suit. He definitely shows he can do it, Sheldon, later on. You know, he did it in She Loves Me in a ton of places, the the library song, even in the title number. I just, I don't know if he had developed that ability, ability at this to, point in his career to make that voice in a character yet yeah um it, it, it also sounded like there was a lot of tension and conflicts just throughout the rehearsal period george abbott did not get along with morris evans at all evans also i mentioned was not a quick study of new material and of course material changes every day in out of town tryouts mm-hmm. in fact at one point george abbott asked him to carry his lines with him on stage and pretend they were letters from parishioners. <laughs> I mean, I told you he ended up writing his lyrics on his cuffs. And if they were written on his costumes. At one point, Morris Evans actually writes himself a new opening speech. Wait, what? It's, it's like top of the show, he speaks to the audience and sort of like, gives them the the lowdown on who he is and what he's about. Okay. And it isn't working, and it keeps changing. It isn't working. It keeps changing. So he writes one himself and hands <gasps> it to Abbott. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. George Abbott, unsurprisingly, did not approve of his writing. <laughs> oh, here's an interesting bit of information. Now, Morris Evans said this. It might have been partly jest. It might have been 100% true. I don't know. But... You know, like we said, he was not the originally the center of the story, that character, until Morris Evans was given the role. Morris Evans feels that he got the role because he um, got to know Bobby Griffith really well during the negotiations with Actors' Equity that took place in June of 1960. He got to know who really well? Um, Robert Griffith. Oh, Bobby Griffith, gotcha. as he calls him. The other producer. The other producer, yes. Yeah. Here's the thing. So those uh, negotiations is what actually ended up uh, eventually getting actors health care and a trust fund. Hmm. Yeah. In that year, because there was a... That's interesting. Uh, uh, there was a strike. Well, you think to yourself, oh, Morris Evans was, you know, fighting for the actors. No. He was on the side of the producer's as he was a producer himself. Gotcha. So he and Bobby Griffith were both trying to keep actors from getting health care oh, and other wow. raises and stuff. So Ugh. I can't imagine the actors thought 
particularly highly of them of him if they knew that fact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I honestly think the biggest problem is was making the lead character the Reverend. Oh, one hundred percent. According to uh, Sheldon Harnick, looking back on the show, I had a qu- mm-hmm. I found a quote from him. Um, uh, Harnick said, quote, unfortunately, as it's been pointed out to us since then, the minister, though he was on the side of virtue and good, was a killjoy. As much as we tried to make the minister human and a fun-loving man, it never quite worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the audience is just simply sympathizing with the wrong people. In every musical you see, the gamblers and the prostitutes are s- the most lovable characters of all. <laughs> I mean, you know who that is? That's that's Brecht. That's brushed for you. Is it? He, he, he's that. I mean, go back and listen to my 30 second explanation. But that was his focus was always the prostitutes and the whores and the underbelly and the well, poor. And not outside of the Brechtian world. Mm-hmm. Standard musicals have all have they all have women of the night as characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always. The bad guys are always comical, you know? Yeah. And, and so you love them. Yeah, you, you applaud hard for them at the end. Not Dr. Brock. Not Dr. Brock. Okay. Uh, will it work today? It's a hard one. What do you think? I think, you know, I have to say, you know, as is, maybe not. Definitely concert will happen. I mean, one did in, I believe... 2000 yes there was an encore's performance of this Mm -hmm. yes uh david ogden styers as brock patrick wilson as tommy encores you know when when they do encores though it's kind of a different animal it's 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 always sort of an homage to older forgotten musicals sort of a re-examining of an unsung show it isn't necessarily uh we're making we're trying to make it work really it happens sometimes well yes sometimes they do like a re- I guess they do work on the book a bit for those sometimes. Mm-hmm. But other, I feel like generally it's just a, we would just want to hear the score because we don't get to hear it really. Yeah. Um, I think maybe with the right director and some maybe changes to the end, like, you know, making sure the focus is on the right people. The, 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 I think the heart of the story for me is Tommy coming to terms with his own inherent goodness and realizing Uh that he has more potential and he inherently is a nicer person than writing for a terrible tattler newspaper is allowing him to be. And I think that's the story that people should be focusing on the most if, if a book rewrite were to happen. But I I don't know. I don't think anyone's going to, I I really don't think this one is going to get remounted really. I don't even know. That for it to be good, Tommy has to find goodness. You know what I mean? There's plenty of musicals where the shitty, cheeky character stays cheeky and shitty, almost gets caught, but then in the end wins. Uh, uh, Pierpont Finch is the perfect example. Right, and we're we're okay with that because we've been laughing and rooting for them the whole time. Especially because they're up against a big machine. Mm -hmm. It's fine that they almost get in trouble. They mm-hmm. can't get in trouble, really, though. I mean, even Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Mm-hmm. You know, if he actually ended up staying in prison, the ending would be kind of a downer. Sure. Instead, there's this deus ex machina, and he walks away with two women. You know, it's it's there's comedy in, in that. And you had a fun evening for him to get to that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. I think if there's ever... A production of this somewhere, and I were to audition, I would want to play Schmidt. I think... I would want to play Tommy. Of course you would. You'd make a lovely Tommy Tommy. Uh, Schmidt says it best, though, in some... He, Schmidt's got some great dialogue in all these confrontation sequences in Act 2. Mm-hmm. And he says it best in trying to explain his side. Why do you think this is the biggest city in the country? Why do you think out of town has come here? What keeps the bright lights going and the green money circulating? Not your sermons, your reverence. Sin. Sin is what keeps this town going around. People want it. And that's how you and I stay in business. It's not how the show stayed in business, but... All right, well, that's it for Tenderloin. (laughs) 
Uh, Bach and Harnick, uh, if case anybody was worried, uh, they're fine. Well, they're one's <laughs> dead, but one's dead. Okay, should we say goodbye? Yeah, let's say goodbye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Flop of the Heap, where you can suggest our next flop. We are an independently produced podcast. Learn more about how you can support us at patreon.com slash flop of the heap podcast. And it would really help us if you gave us five stars and left a comment. All right, bye. bye. See, Laura, what it says here, here in this wicked paper.